It's a big world, and survival depends on the quality of your decisions. You need a diverse viewpoint to see all the opportunities around you. Now is the time, and this is the place. This is the Ellis Martin Report. When you hear us mention companies doing any kind of business, there's a large probability, if not a certainty, that the Ellis Martin Report is compensated for that mention. We're telling you this so you can make your own independent evaluation of these opportunities. Also, as with most leading-edge opportunities, if you can't afford to potentially lose your investment, don't risk it. We make no personal recommendations about any sponsor on this program. We encourage you to do your own research. Yes, we do as much due diligence as possible, but nothing is completely predictable in this big world. Here's an idea. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Report. It's easy and it's free. Visit us at ellismartinreport.com. And now, here's Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. I just returned from the Precious Metals Summit at Beaver Creek, Colorado, where I had the pleasure of visiting with the Honorable Ranch Pillay, Minister of Economic Development for the Yukon Territory. I've been in the Yukon several times, most recently for the Yukon Mining Alliance's conference late June in Dawson City. The Yukon government, along with the Yukon Mining Alliance, under the direction of Minister Pillay, has been very proactive with regard to reaching out beyond the borders of the territory and Canada in illustrating opportunities in mining in the jurisdiction more so in my opinion than any other Canadian province or territory. Several producing mines have gone into production during the last few years alone, with more of the majors looking into further acquisitions there. Minister, welcome to Colorado. Great to see you here. No, it's great to see you. Great to be here in Beaver Creek. What brings you all the way from the Yukon to Colorado? Well, look, we understand that this is an absolutely exceptional conference, bringing together global voices when it comes to precious metals. We're here supporting companies that are here from the Yukon, making sure that the investment world understands that our government sees the importance of mining and what it does for our economy. So we just want to add our voice, and we think it's important to be here standing next to the private sector at such an important conference. I've been covering the Yukon specifically for many years now, and I have to say, wherever I'm at in the world, usually, typically, I will see a representative either from the Yukon government or the the Yukon Mining Association there out of all the provinces and territories in Canada. You're the most active. We think we're a leader when it comes to a jurisdiction telling their story, certainly in Canada. And we've seen other provinces and territories learn from them. I mean, the Yukon Mining Alliance does an exceptional job of coordinating between the Yukon government as well as with our companies and their members. And yeah, we think it's important to be out there telling their story. I mean, there's two regions in Canada that had positive GDP during the two years of COVID. We were the leading one and that was because of mine. So it's really important to us to continue to see that effects on our own. What is the labor force like there in the UK? You have so many projects going on and I would think there's a limited workforce everywhere where it's very busy. So how do you deal with that? And you mentioned that you had a great two years during the pandemic. I'm sure you were able to close off the Yukon at the same time. You have a workforce there that's able to do the work. So run through that if you don't mind, Minister. Sure. I think what we kept our minds running mm -hmm. and we kept our projects running when other regions did. We felt that the standards that are deployed by the private sector were going to be top notch and they were. We didn't have any issues. And it was really important at that time. Victoria Gold had just started to get up and running and we knew as well what the consequences could be. So public health was the first priority and second was to make sure that we had the right protocols in place and that worked. And we did have the ability, as you said, to sort of isolate ourselves. Labor is one of our biggest concerns. We're at a 1.7% unemployment rate. You don't see that number anywhere else in North America. Is so that the best in the world? Then, well, I, you know, I don't have a lot of total global <laughs> figures, but I know that it definitely 
definitely leading Canada and probably would be leading North America. And we're in a position right now where there's so much opportunity in the territory, not just in that sector, but in multiple sectors. It's a challenge. The second thing we have to contemplate is the mining sector. When you think about more on the production side, it's harder to find people. Like I, I'm coming from a family that's been in mining for generations. And the folks in my family that have worked in hard rock miners over the last hundred years. In the Yukon? Some in the Yukon, but really across Canada. Mm -hmm. And people are just not going into the field the same way they were before. So I think for us on the aspiration side, which is really important to us, I think we see the capacity there. We're lucky that we have this ecosystem in the Yukon of prospectors, explorers, the juniors, of course, majors there. So we have in all the service sector people that need to support that and a government that understands it. So in that sense, you know, we're through our labor market initiatives and our training facility and then of course, Canada's first university in the North, which is Yukon University. We're in a position where we can train local, but it's still a challenge. I think it's going to be a challenge in North America and we have to be thinking about everything from our immigration policy, which also falls under my jurisdiction and responsibility, how we maximize the opportunities through that, but all the while having a focus on upskilling within our own community. Speaking of upscaling, I imagine there's quite a workforce available, not just now, but in the future through First Nations and some of the children that are attending schools right now. So what kind of educational program has been established there to, to bring First Nations individuals and anybody in the Yukon that's uh, young right now into the fold with regard to the labor force and mining? The work of our First Nation governments in the Yukon is extremely progressive. We're actually just embarking on First Nation Education Directorate has now moved into a First Nation school board to define a curriculum and a path that's going to work best for their citizens in conjunction with the Yukon government. So all of our communities where there's a lot of mining activity have good schools, great teachers. And I would say that every First Nation government in the Yukon, so 14 First Nations, all put education as the top. They spend um, extensive money on investing in their citizens at the post-secondary level and all the while make sure that they're supporting people through the school system. You know, what we try to do for everybody, all Yukon citizens, is make sure that folks that are going through elementary school or going into um, into junior high or high school have an opportunity to understand the importance of money. And that conversation's even changed, I think, in the sense of where critical minerals are now and how people are looking at a clean future and how we're gonna get there. And of course, when you look at the Yukon, 25 of those on the list, 25 of those minerals are, are in our backyard. So it's extremely important that citizens understand that they can be part of a, a global push towards a cleaner future, but it's also going to take mining and we have all those opportunities in our backyard. These are great paying jobs. And what we've seen, Victoria Gold, there's a great story where one of the miners that was on site went to speak with John McConnell. And, and he talked about how he was living in another part of Canada because there was better economic opportunities at the time. But he came back to the Yukon to work at Victoria Gold and he's still working there. In my last conversation with John, which was about a couple of weeks ago. And what he was most excited about was he was a First Nation man from the Yukon, but his children got to come home and now they could spend time with their grandparents. And now they were getting to be back on the land with their grandparents. So they were focusing on their traditional language, which now they had a chance to learn from them and grandpa. And as well, having that support system, which if they were working in Alberta or Saskatchewan, they wouldn't have that. So there's a a lot of great stories that you hear where people now have that opportunity to come back to the Yukon and have great jobs. You mentioned that you come from a mining family and that you've been involved in mining for, for many years. What brought you to government? What specifically brought you to the realm of ministering such a great territory? What was your passion? You could certainly involve yourself on the other side of it with regard to mining companies, whether they be senior or junior, but you chose a different path. Yeah, yeah, my grandfather was a hard rock miner in Ontario and my uncles worked in Ontario, Indonesia, 
Africa, around the world, and a lot of my, a lot of other family members did. When I was younger, I wanted to be a hard rock miner. My grandfather said, no, you should be going to school once. You know, he, that's what he sort of focused on. And then to be open, it was just a period of time where you know, I had other interests after going to university and work that I did. And I made a move to the Yukon about 20 years ago. And of course, it's a story, history of mining. And I've always had an interest to be entrepreneurial. And of course, got to be in the private side of mining for a little while. Got to understand the industry a bit. The move into politics, you know, I think I've always had um, an interest of being put in a situation where you can work on somebody's behalf and try to solve problems for them. And that could be as small as a family member's having a challenge with accessing a program to the government that's really important for them, maybe for a health reason, you, you know, you name it. Or it's a bigger picture thing where we're in a situation right now where we're looking at modernizing our port in Skagway so we have access to Tidewater for Yukon companies moving into the future. Complex, building a big piece of infrastructure in another country, multiple levels of government, figuring out the financing model. So it can be a complex sort of wicked problem that you get to tackle, or it could be something that's really important to somebody that's a smaller issue. But at the end of the day, when you kind of figure out what you want to do in life and if serving people to solve problems, it's kind of related. And that's what I feel comfortable doing. So in addition to helping out the grassroots level, which is what I just heard, and also on a macro level, mm-hmm. I'm interested to see what your vision and the general vision for, I would say, futurists in that area, looking ahead 5, 10, 15, 20, 50 years, what will the Yukon be during that, the course of that time? I'd say collectively within our government, because it's, it's something that I, of course, got, have colleagues that are covering some of the other departments in our premier Look, I think we want to be in a position where we are, our ability to show how to work hand in hand as partners with Indigenous governments as a leader in the country, if not the world. We want to be able to build infrastructure out that's needed for our projects, but infrastructure that's also going to serve the public good and make the quality of life better for all Yukoners. I think that we have a significant role to play on the precious metal side. And I think it's important that our communities understand that during times of global turmoil, those precious metals have been extremely important for us in the sense of a long-term insurance policy really is what I see. And so embrace the fact that we are such a great gold producer and understand how that can protect us where other jurisdictions don't have them and really respect that. I also think when we talk about critical minerals, you have to understand that we, in an ESG lens, we do it. Before people were talking about ESG, we have the environmental assessment piece in place that has representation for the federal, the territorial, and the and indigenous governments making those decisions. Same thing with water licensing, and same thing when you go through the process to get a license to build a mine. On the social side, continue to work to ensure that the impact of projects is positive and learn from negative impacts globally over the last number of years so you don't see those things happen. And I think on, and on the governance side, making sure that we're partnering with different levels of government or indigenous governments to make sure projects go forward. So make sure the projects are done right, responsibly, continue to have a diverse collective and portfolios of projects so that when you see swings in a particular commodity, there's other projects that are still boistering your economy and, and building it out with the right partners. Like we're, I'm excited. I mean, I think the junior mining companies in the Yukon understand the Yukon. And I think that the majors that are coming in and will continue to come in and acquire are, it's gonna be good because they, to be very open, they have CSR standards to think about. You know, you think about somebody like Newmont, you know, meet with their uh, CEO on Monday back in Denver. And I, when, you, when you think about how they have to position themselves and how they have to carry themselves in the modern world, you're doing things at the best level and the best possible. And so those are good partners. So, I mean, that's what I see as a, as a vision really. 
sort of over the next five or 10 years. And I think we're well on our way in all those aspects. And that infrastructure that you reference, who's going to pay for that? Is that a collaboration between the federal government and the, the juniors and the, and the majors that are coming into the area? Because if you're going to expand the port access and build yeah. out that necessary infrastructure, build schools, everything that needs to be done for growing economic development center, yeah. it'll, in my opinion, the Yukon is going to be a, a great economic development area for the world, supplying the critical minerals and metals and precious metals that will become more valuable over time. How is that going to get funded, that infrastructure? The envelope of work that we're doing right now on infrastructure is extremely impressive, I think, and we're all uh, kind of go through some of the things that we're looking at right now. So first of all, our, our airport, we're spending about $100 million right now, and it's in partnership with the federal government, absolutely. All of this work has to be done, and, and, and why is that important? Well, yeah, it's about building the right foundation to support a mining sector, but it's also people are starting to understand the geopolitical risks and the fact that we are a territory that has a road that goes all the way from the Arctic, you can drive from the Arctic to Miami through Whitehorse. It's important that people understand where we are. We have a coast, a lot of people don't know. We have a coast on the Beaufort Sea that belongs to the Yukon. This is, you know, we're, we're considering where, where our position is within the world and how we have to prepare and future-proof our infrastructure. So uh, our investments right now and through our airport, again, as I said, it's in conjunction with the federal government and it's gonna be able to have uh, bigger and bigger jets fly in and more capacity on roads. It's about 470, almost a half a billion, 470 million that we have an envelope right now that we're spending. That considers about over a hundred million dollars from the Yukon government. It's about 250, 60 million from the federal government. And then the juniors and majors that are at the table are putting in about a hundred million. We've got six project agreements and those that looks at road upgrade. First of all, it's contemplating the areas where you see Hecla is just on Lexco, um, Victoria Gold Mine, the Banyan piece, metallic minerals, that full area. There's an upgrade from Mayo Yukon up into that region. When you take into consideration the area where fireweed is and now of course snow line in that, that area. I mean, we've got a commitment right now. We have a $71 million agreement moving and upgrading roads on the Robert Campbell area near Ross River and then the North Canal. If another area just outside of Watson Lake where there's great potential agreements side there with the First Nations. Every one of these areas, we've signed agreements that identify the benefits for the indigenous governments in the area. And again, support the upgrade of infrastructure. Western Copper right now, who's in a very significant conversation with Rio Tinto. We have work underway there. I had one of the mining CEOs from, well, from Rock Haven, Matt, showing me this week the completion of work that we've, that we've got done. On the road side, I think there's really significant money that's going into all of these areas. On the port, that is a, you know, a conversation. We're doing the final analysis on what the best business model is. We've injected some money on the design work. Now we're going to engineering. We're working with the municipality of Skagway and the private sector to understand what the best solution is for their needs moving forward. We're contemplating a significant spend, but we're also at the table with the federal government saying, look, we've got an agreement between Canada and, and the US around critical minerals. This is how the Northwestern part of Canada moves its minerals, its concentrate to Tidewater. So we're having that dialogue at the federal level with Canadian ministers. I'm having that dialogue with consul generals that represent America. I mean, it's a very significant conversation. So we're still working on the modeling for that, how we're gonna essentially pay for the CapEx. I think when you take into consideration modern mining standards, we're building a 777 kilometer fiber line, which inevitably will give complete redundancy to the northern part of Canada. So a lot of people don't know you where our singular fiber line breaks on its way up the Alaska Highway. It actually knocks out comms over on the other part of North America in Nineveh because we're actually beaming by satellite 
this other signal. So in order to remedy that, we're spending in conjunction with the federal government, $85 million and with the private sector to build a really technical project that's moving towards completion, which is a uh, fiber line that goes all the way up the Dempster Highway, basically to the, really to the Arctic Ocean. So we, this is how we're looking at an integrated approach to infrastructure. The money's in place. We've worked extremely hard over the last number of years. And really the only thing that I've touched on that, that we don't have um, a funding model in place for is the port, which is actually one of the smaller spends compared to all those other projects. Interesting. I'm wondering, because we are in an age of artificial intelligence, how that's being deployed or how will it be deployed? And that could that increase the, the season for mining, which is hampered in many cases by, by the long winters that you have in the Yukon? You know, there's a great presentation yesterday from Tara Christie, who's the CEO from Banyan, talking about the fact that they really were moving their exploration activity. I think she said 11 of 12 months last year. So they were drilling in January, they they, the year before, and they completed drilling in December. So, you know, I think we're all seeing sort of shifts in climate compared and new technology and innovation and the ability to get in there and do exploration in over a longer period of time. But the fiber line, that's why I touch on that. When you sit down with majors now, they're moving to build mines that are moving 12 months of the year. And they're also looking to be able to access and share data out of their mine sites back to their headquarters or to their data centers in the most streamlined way, in the most modern way. So yeah, when you're sitting down with Goldcorp before the acquisition by Newmind, the conversation was how much are we going to be able to automate? And within that, how are we going to move data? So yeah, it's an additional part of the conversation compared to what we think about traditional mining methods. What would you say to university students and mining schools all over the world right now, some of them listening to this program about potential opportunity in the Yukon and why they should consider a career yeah. in the Yukon? Yeah. A bit of a student of Richard Florida in the sense that you look at what makes great cultural aspects to a society and, and a community. And I think I think it's Hoosier City. It's something he published along quite a while, probably Dick. And they talk, there's a Canadian edition that talks about the North. And really in that range of coming out of post-secondary school and moving to look at opportunities, first of all, the Yukon has phenomenal opportunities for career advancement, professional opportunities for professional development. I think there's a lot of similarities between the Yukon and Colorado. I, you know, when you talk to people here that live in Denver and the area that we're in right now, they love the outdoors and they love whether it's mountain biking or paddling or skiing. And that's the same thing in the Yukon. I mean, we have great backcountry skiing and a great ski hill. We have world-class mountain biking. We have world-class paddling. We have world-class hiking. We have all of these things that for a certain person, not for everybody, but if you like to be in the outdoors, you want to be able to have significant professional development, you're adventurous, and you want to be put in a position to understand who you really are. I think that's the key we talk about. That's the lore of the Yukon. Like, you want to define who you are and you need to have different opportunities to test who you are, I think that's a place that you should come in and at least check out. And if it works for you, I mean, the myth of Yukon is people come for a day and stay for a lifetime. So uh, I would say that's something that's really important. If, if people want to come and check it out, I think there's some great, great professional opportunities. I agree. I think it's a great place to find out who you are. Why not there? Yeah. Absolutely. Minister Kalai, it's been a great pleasure to have this conversation with you, Aliba, on such a positive note. Thank you so much for joining me today in the program. Always a, always a pleasure to see you and always a pleasure to chat with you. Uh, have a great week here and thanks again for the opportunity to share the Yukon story. You're most welcome. Thank you. I've been speaking with the Honorable Ranj Pillay, Minister of Economic Development for the Yukon Territory at the Precious Metal Summit in Beaver Creek, Colorado. This is the Ellis Martin Report. 
Join me now for a conversation with Claudia Tornquist, President and CEO of Kodiak Copper Corporation, trading as KDK on the TSX Venture Exchange, KDKCF in the U.S., and 5DD1 in Frankfurt. Claudia, welcome back to the program. Great to visit with you today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Alice. I'm looking at your very recent news release, and you have some very nice grade over 117 meters with copper equivalent over 735 meters at the gate zone. Give us some detail on that if you don't mind. Yes, that's the headline intercept from our last news release, the best hole that we released. We're very pleased with the result. It's a very long intercept of 734 meters, 0.34% copper equivalent. That's a great, that's higher than what is mined next door. Keep that in mind. And importantly, this intercept has a large, long 117 meter section in the middle with over a percent copper, 1.03%. So really nice, long, high great intercept as well. So very pleased with the latest drill results at the gate zone. And we just keep filling in and making it bigger and adding to the mineralization that we have already. The sector has seen a lot of pain right now. And I'm a shareholder. I'm a happy shareholder because I know what's going to be happening at some point with copper in this world. The economics will favor copper in a big way. We've had such suppression that when it returns, it should be very, very substantial. One of the great things about your company is that you're fully funded going forward and you're not going to suffer the pain that a lot of juniors are suffering right now in the space. Yes, that's a very important point that you just highlighted. We have a fully funded drill program going on, big drill program, 25,000 meters for this year, and have similar size program planned next year and are well funded for it. So don't need to go back for the market to finance, which is incredibly important in the current market. We have the cash to weather the storm and generate lots of drill results over the next couple of months and come out with an advantage as and when the market turns. I think the share structure is very, very similar to when we started covering your company almost a year ago. And there has been some selling, of course, as there has been selling across the sector. I would think with such a very nice, sweet share structure that you have, that this would be a great place for people like me to accumulate more shares. Well, if you look at our insider filing, then you certainly see that insiders think that this is a good time to buy. Our share price has suffered like most everybody else and certainly not where we want it to be. But yeah, that's the market that's not under our control. And as I said, we are in a good situation in that we are financed and have enough cash to keep drilling and working through the downturn and come out ahead once it turns. End users are not using any less copper. They're using more. And with the electrification of the world right now and this push towards electric cars, whether we're ready with the resource or not, you would think that at some point all attention is going to focus on the juniors and the mid-tiers and the majors in this space. The long-term story for copper remains completely intact. There's obviously now some short-term uncertainties with all the geopolitical things going on and commodity prices are seeing a lot of volatility. But the electrification is just a super tanker that's in motion that won't stop. And there is no doubt in my mind that a lot of copper will be needed in the medium and longer term and a lot more copper mines will have to be found and built. And that's what our business is with Kodiak. Okay, we're rolling into the end of the year. We're not there yet. I don't want to rush it, or maybe I do. What's the plan for 2023 with Kodiak Copper? What have you got on the horizon? We have a similar size drill program planned to this year. So another 25,000 meters. So big drill program. 
and very importantly, on a number of different targets. We have so far mostly drilled on the gate zone, our first discovery, and near the gate zone. And just in the last couple of weeks have moved onto another target, which is called Dillard, which is a very large target that I'm personally very excited about. And we have multiple other porphyry targets. What we have at MPD is a multi-centric porphyry system, like many others in British Columbia and elsewhere. And so we have these previously drilled areas where we have shallow mineralization, and we are now looking, just as we did at GATE, same approach for the higher grade porphyry center, the higher grade zone that is associated with the lower grade mineralization that we have already. And so there's a lot of potential for more discoveries. Obviously, it's exploration. There are no promises, but I think we have a very good chance of coming up with one or several new discoveries for our shareholders over the next couple of months. Claudia, it's always great to catch up with you. Thanks a lot for bringing this good news to our audience and shareholders like myself. I look forward to more news in the upcoming months. Thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Thank you. I've been speaking with Claudia Tornquist, President and CEO of Kodiak Copper Corporation. Trading is KDK on the TSX Venture Exchange, KDKCF in the U.S., and 5DD1 in Frankfurt. Find the complete story on the company's website, KodiakCopperCorp.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Remember, all companies showcased on this program have paid for the privilege to be interviewed by Mr. Martin. Should you consider investing in them, do so at your own risk. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Jordan Trimble, the President and Chief Executive Officer of Sky Harbor Resources, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SYH and in the U.S. on the OTCQB as SYHBF. Sky Harbor is a preeminent uranium and thorium exploration company with projects located in the prolific Athabasca Basin of Saskatchewan, Canada. The company has just secured an option to acquire an initial 51% and up to 100% of the Russell Lake Uranium Project from Rio Tinto in the Athabasca. This brings the total land package of Sky Harbor resources in the Athabasca Basin to over 450,000 hectares or 4,500 square kilometers consisting of a total of 15 properties with some of the most high-grade uranium targets in the world. Jordan, welcome back to the program. It's been way too long. How are you? I'm great. It's good to be back. Looking forward to catching up with you. I took a look at the uranium price just before this interview, and it's at $48 per pound. Are we getting close to the trigger point where this market could really take off? Well, look, it's held in there. It has pulled back recently. I think a big part of that has to do with the broader market pullback that we're seeing. But it's traded between the high 40s, low 50s for a little while now, and it's found some good support here. I do believe we are gearing up for a move higher later this year and into the new year. The underlying fundamentals for this commodity are incredibly compelling. That hasn't changed. In fact, they've only grown stronger over the last several months since you and I last spoke. But just to recount some of the key talking points with the uranium price, with the uranium mining industry and the nuclear industry, I was just in London at the World Nuclear Symposium, one of the marquee nuclear and uranium mining conferences globally. First time in three years that they've held it in person. And the key takeaways there were, one, the market has completely changed 
changed from three years ago. A number of major developments that have occurred over the last several years, which you and I have spoken extensively about. But just to, again, recount some of these events and developments that, and that have changed the market. One, the sentiment for nuclear energy is the only source of baseload, clean, affordable, scalable, reliable, base 24-7 clean energy is continuing to gain momentum globally as countries and economies look to decarbonize. And that was a key theme at the conference is the world looks to meet their decarbonization objectives. Nuclear energy is going to continue to play a prominent role, and that prominent role will likely increase over the coming years. You have countries like China, for example, that are planning to build 150 new nuclear power plants over the next 15 years. That's more nuclear capacity coming on in China alone in the next 15 years than has come on globally in the last 35 years. Another key takeaway from the conference was the rapid development and commercialization and funding going into small modular reactors and other advanced nuclear technologies. As we've talked about before, I believe that's going to be a key growth driver for nuclear energy and uranium demand in the West. So that was significant. And the geopolitical landscape that we're in right now, the conflict in Ukraine and Russia right now is continuing to have a major impact in the market. And this was something that was talked about at the conference and uh, we're continuing to see the ramifications of this. Uh, as most of your audience probably knows, Russia is a, a key player in the nuclear industry and in the uranium mining industry in the nuclear fuel cycle. They account for just over 10% of primary mine supply. As you know, Kazakhstan, however, accounts for over 40% of primary global mine supply. But Russia has a significant stranglehold on the conversion and enrichment markets. And this was talked about extensively at the conference and has got a lot of attention over the last several months in the nuclear industry. So with Russia having about 30 to 40% of the conversion and enrichment markets, and as Russia is being carved out by the West right now, this is putting Western utilities and nuclear fuel cycle companies in a bit of a tricky position. They're going to have to start sourcing material from safe Western supplies and suppliers. They're going to have to continue to find ways to not be so reliant on Russia and some of Russia's allies. So this global conflict is really putting a strain on the conversion and enrichment markets. There's a real bottleneck there. And we've seen the conversion and enrichment prices increase drastically over the last 12 months. Yellowcake U308, the material that's mined, the price that we see in the spot market and in the contract market, as you pointed out at $48 a pound today, I believe that price is going to be the last shoe to drop in terms of its price increase as the other parts of the fuel cycle have been stressed recently. And again, a big part of that being geopolitical issues in the market. We're also now seeing what's called underfeeding shift to overfeeding. And this is part and parcel with that, these intermediate products in the nuclear fuel cycle. We're seeing underfeeding, which was a source of secondary supply over the last five to 10 years, shift to overfeeding, which will now be a source of secondary demand. And just to, again, provide some numbers on the supply demand fundamentals for this commodity, you've got about uh, 190 to 200 million pounds of annual demand 
demand. And that's in the backdrop right now of primary mine supply at about 135 to 145 million pounds of primary mine supply. So there's a major supply deficit. There have been secondary supplies and inventories that have met that supply deficit, but those secondary supplies are dwindling. And that's further exacerbated by these financial entities that have come to market in the last several years, including the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust and Yellow Cake. And so that's just continuing to tighten the market. And then one last note too, and this has always been a big talking point for this industry, and it usually is one of the major catalysts that drives a higher uranium price is contracting, utility contracting. We've already seen over a hundred million pounds of utility contracting this year, year to date, which is a significant amount but it sounds like it looks like they're just really getting started. I expect to see that contracting ramp up. And I believe these contracts are going to be priced at much higher levels than where you currently see the commodity trading at. So all in all, there's been a lot of good news. If if you look at other countries globally, we know there's obviously been a lot of positive and growing positive sentiment for nuclear energy in the West. But if you look at other countries globally, as I mentioned, China, India is a big growth center for nuclear energy. Japan just recently announced a shift in their energy policy. They're going to be expediting the restart of seven more nuclear reactors by this time next year with plans to get 25 to 30 of their nuclear reactors online over the coming years. So that's a notable shift as that was a big overhang on the industry. And we're seeing more positive news out of the EU as well. We obviously saw earlier this year with inclusion of nuclear energy into their sustainable finance taxonomy. But we're seeing governments almost across the board in Europe continue to double down on their commitment to nuclear energy. And lastly, looking at the U.S., the recent Inflation Reduction Act is going to be very positive for nuclear in the country. The U.S. is still the largest consumer of uranium with just under 100 operating reactors. And nuclear energy and the development of new nuclear technologies, advanced nuclear technologies, was specifically highlighted in the Inflation Reduction Act. So again, a lot of positive tailwinds for this sector, both in the East and the West. A lot of reasons to believe that there will be a much higher uranium price over the coming 12 months. One thing we haven't really discussed in this interview, and I know you can talk about it, is Canada and the Athabasca with some of the highest grades of uranium in the world and the very large land package that you hold and that you've project out to some of your partners here. Let's focus on that and what's the Canadian government doing, if anything, to help develop the Athabasca? Well, look, the Athabasca, as you know, is the highest grade depository of uranium in the world. Saskatchewan's consistently ranked in the top five mining districts by the Fraser Institute. So it really is the best place in the world to be looking for uranium deposits, developing these deposits and mining these uranium deposits. It's a very pro-business environment up there. There's a very skilled workforce that's been working with the various mining companies for many, many decades. The Canadian government and the provincial government have been helpful in facilitating new investment coming into the sector. For example, flow through financings that whereby the Canadian government grants a tax incentive to investors. In fact, we just raised three and a half million in a flow through financing with two strategic institutional investors. So that will cover us for the next 12 months of drilling that we have planned 
end at our various projects, including our first drill program slated to commence later this year at our recently acquired Russell Lake project, as well as some additional drilling at our existing flagship Moore Lake project. If you don't mind, let's review some of the progress that your partner companies have made. Absolutely. So as you know, the partner companies have been quite busy. This is a part of a prospect generator business whereby we have five partner companies, two joint ventures, and three active earning option partners. So just to recap their progress over the last year or so here, most recently, Basin Uranium Corp has announced the commencement of a 4,000 meter drill program, a second phase of drilling at our Man Lake project. This is to follow up on the initial 3,500 meters of drilling that they completed earlier in the year where they had some quite significant zones of of mineralization. Uh, And it's important to note that this is a a project that hasn't had a lot of drilling. Uh, Less than 15 drill holes have been put into this project. The fact that they're intersecting uranium mineralization at this property that early on is notable. So we're very excited for them to get back to work there as they continue to earn in at that project. They have to continue meeting their cash payments and share issuances, as well as the exploration expenditures over the coming years to complete that earn-in. We're excited to have them as a partner, and we're looking forward to the completion of this upcoming phase two program and the results coming out of it. Moving over to our Hook Lake project, where ASX-listed Valor Resources recently completed a small drill program with assays pending. They've done some great work there. This is a project that is host to a high-grade outcrop called the Hook Lake target, uh, which is hosted up to 68% U through A at surface in samples. They, Valor proceeded to go and drill test some of the underlying targets in and around that high-grade surface showing as well as some other targets at the project. So we're excited to get the results announced in and announced for that. And then over at our Yurchison project, the company Madero Mining has completed a summer field program, including some groundwork and some geophysical work. They are planning to commence a field program later this year with the intent of drilling it at some point in the next 12 months. So we're looking forward again to continued exploration of the advancement of that project. And then last but not least, as in court, which has been, as you know, very, very active at our East Preston project. They are now the majority owner at this project, having completed exploration and making cash and share payments over the course of several years. They have plans for another 6,000 meters of drilling starting later this year, which we're keen to see them get back to work and hopefully make a high-grade discovery at this project. I think it's ripe for discovery. They've done some excellent work. They've done a fair bit of drilling now, and I think they're very much vectoring in on a high-grade zone of uranium mineralization. So all in all, very active partner companies. We are in talks with a few other companies on some potentially new partnerships, options, and joint venture partnerships at some of our other 100% owned projects. So keep an eye out for announcements on those. And I'd be remiss not to talk about the main catalyst, which will be the exploration and the drilling that we're going to be carrying out at our core project. So as you know, we've got, in addition to the projects funded by the partner companies, we have three core projects, our flagship Moore Lake, where we've been actively exploring for the better part of the last six years. We still have assays pending from a drill program earlier in the year. We have plans to continue exploring and working there. News forthcoming on that. And more recently, we've optioned the Russell Lake project from Rio Tinto, a major deal for the company. 
a significant transaction whereby we can earn up to 100% of a very strategic property in the middle of the eastern part of the basin, basically all the land between the MacArthur River Mine and the Key Lake Mill, the road that connects the mine with the mill, runs up to our property as well as power lines and a 40-person exploration camp at the project, which will significantly decrease our exploration and drill costs. We have plans for significant amount of drilling over the next 12 months, likely in the range of eight to 10,000 years of drilling. We'll have some news out on this in the coming weeks and months. Fully funded for that now with the recent financing that we just closed. It's a project that's had a fair bit of historic exploration, but a lot of these exploratory drill holes were quite widely spaced and exploratory in nature. We're going to go back in there with a new look at the project and some new ideas, and we're confident that we can deliver a new high-grade discovery. It's adjacent as well to our Moore Lake project, so we can co-advance both of these properties at the same time. And it straddles Denison's Wheeler River project to the east of the Wheeler River project. So again, a very strategic over 73,000 hectare project that we're very, very excited to get to work on later this year. You can't predict these things, of course, and I do my very best not to predict the market, but I believe we've seen a bottom already. There's a nice uptick over the last month, and if you liked Sky Harbor a year ago and didn't get involved, or maybe if you did, there's even a better opportunity right now at this point in the market, I think. Don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And look, I've been putting my money where my mouth is. I've been acquiring share over the last several months as the market's been volatile. I think there's an incredible value proposition, especially with just in the last 12 months, the addition of new partner companies and the acquisition of the Russell Lake Uranium Project. So the story has changed significantly for the better. Obviously, with the broader markets showing some weakness, you know, most uranium companies have been volatile, but I do believe there will be higher uranium prices and a better uranium market in the years to come. And Sky Harbor is poised to take advantage of these rising prices. And outside of you and your partner companies in the Athabasca, I don't think there's a lot of choices right now with investing with regard to investing in the juniors. No, there isn't. And that's a great point. It's still not a crowded sector. And just recently, a company, UEX, was acquired by UEC in a bidding war. UEX was one of the larger junior companies in the Athabasca Basin, really the only company that was between 100 to $300 million market cap. So if you look at the gap, the valuation gap in the Athabasca Basin right now, you have companies that are in that $450, $500 million market cap range, all the way up to Cameco, multi-billion. And then there's a big drop-off down to uh, just a few companies that are between that 50 to $100 million valuation, Sky Harbor included. So you're, you're absolutely right. There aren't a lot of active companies out there in that valuation range. Certainly, I think will make for an interesting year up ahead. Jordan, it's always great to catch up with you. I look forward to more news as the fall rolls out. Thanks so much for joining me today in the program. Absolutely. Great catching up with you, Alice. We'll talk soon. I've been speaking with Jordan Trimble, the president and CEO of Sky Harbor Resources, trading as SYH on the TSX Venture Exchange and the U.S. on the OTCQB as SYHBF. I'm Alice Martin. You may assume that Alice Martin is a shareholder on any of the companies that sponsor the Alice Martin Report, which means he has a vested interest potentially in them. Join us next time for more opportunities to discover on the Ellis Martin Report. Meanwhile, subscribe to the Ellis Martin Report. It's easy and it's free. Visit ellismartinreport.com. 
do it now. See you next time. Yeah.